I had endeavored to preach all the way through verse 11 and realized that uh, I had a bit too much to say. So we're going to go through verse 8 today, just verses 5 through 8. That means that the title of this sermon should not be at the name of Jesus. So you all can listen to the sermon, tell me what you think the title should be. Maybe that'll invoke some greater tension. So, also, we need to not, uh, we needed, I needed to change the song of response. So it's not going to be, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. We'll probably sing that next week. It's going to be, the sands of time are sinking, number 546 in the red. So that's going to be our song of response this morning. We'll get to all that. But first, let's hear from God's holy word as we read the Holy Scriptures, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Much of reality TV is often silly, and uh, there's a often times silly show. I have not really watched much of it, but uh, the show Undercover Boss. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, it's a silly show, as I mentioned, but it's, a, it's really a modern telling of an ancient story. The show itself has appeal because modern people want to see situations in workplaces unfold with both good employees and bad employees working in front of their boss without anyone actually knowing it. Not just any boss usually the highest-ranking person in the company, the CEO or the owner. And so stripped of proper CEO regalia and appearance, the boss would look nothing like what the workers would have expected, thus creates the, the drama of various workers finding out that for however long they've worked faithfully or unfaithfully in the presence of company royalty, so to speak. But as I said, it's really an ancient story. And that's why it connects to our hearts and aspects of folklore. It's the story of the incognito king, where a conspicuous and sometimes ominous figure will walk among the peasantry, the common folk, often displaying great courage and ability to fight, often winning great victories, then to emerge in a burst of light and glory to show that all along he was the king. Lord of the Rings tells a story much like this. And it works because of the centrality of a king's clothing and vestments and his appearance. Kings were known by what they wore. And what they wore, oftentimes, particularly in the ancient world, put them on the same level in the eyes of the public as the gods. They were viewed as godlike figures, and they dressed in a way that showed that. The Apostle Paul uses the ancient notions of status and even clothing today in order to impress upon our minds 
the glory of the work of Christ. It's a call to unity in this passage, but it's really about the glory of the work of Christ. So let's gather around this text this morning. Let's be encouraged together at the glory of our Savior. And it it is so in order to give gospel fuel to our love and our unity. We're called to live gospel-centered lives spurred on by a zeal for God's glory and a, a zeal to gaze upon our King in all of His majesty, in all of His splendor. And so here's our central idea this morning. The Scripture calls us to consider that Christ came from the highest heights to the deepest depths in order to save sinners. When we consider that rightly and when we consider that together, God creates true and lasting unity among his people who love nothing more than glorifying their Savior and their triune God. Really just two ideas this morning. The first is the highest heights, the form of God. The second is the deepest depths, the form of a servant. The highest heights, the form of God. The deepest depths, the form of a servant. As I said, the, the, the theme that Paul has been driving home in the past few passages that we've looked at is unity. To have a unity amongst the people of God. Unity in our outward face as we face the world. And then our inward unity as well. To have unity of mind and unity of affection. The power to do all that is of course found in the work of the triune God alone. The triune God of scripture who works in his people. Who has begun a work in us and will be faithful to complete it. That's the only hope for us to obey. And of course, the way that God works through his people, the means of his working, is through the gospel of grace. And that gospel is seen principally in the life of Jesus Christ. And so that gospel comes front and center for us today. And we see the way that Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is using the gospel in these marvelous and and different ways. He calls us to look upon the gospel as our means of reconciliation. This is how you are reconciled to God. But then he also calls us to gaze upon the gospel in order to create in us a vital faithfulness and zeal for God's glory. And then he also calls upon us to look upon Christ in the gospel as our example. This is what it means to live a gospel-centered life circled around the glory of God. Christ. It's an all-encompassing kind of thing. So the first phrase this morning says, your attitudes should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Remember, in the last couple of weeks, Paul has said things like, have the same mind. Be united in your thinking. And what he says ultimately here is that the mind we are to have is the mind patterned after Jesus Christ himself, the Savior who came to earth. We should also note here the way that Paul uses mind. Our translation says attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's in order to show us that it's more than just a head knowledge. It's more than just information. It's the kind of thing that orients us towards a right action. Perhaps the English word mindset would be a a good word to use here. That wouldn't be the most literal translation of the word. If you have a, a mindset that you will not fail a test then you're going to make sure that you study in proper ways to make sure that that does not happen. So an attitude is the same kind of thing. It's a mindset. It orients you towards action. But then Paul digresses a bit to tell us 
about that Christ Jesus, about his attitude, and to put it on display for us. And that brings us into this wonderful passage, perhaps one of the most famous in the New Testament, one that we often use even for our uh, confession of faith. But in order to understand Paul's point, we need to get a little bit technical for a few minutes, so uh, please excuse that, try to track with me as we talk about what uh, Paul means here under the inspiration of the Spirit. Our translation says that he was in the ver- in very nature God. You may notice that when I read the scripture this morning, I said he is in the form of God. And I think that's the, the better way to translate it here, and it gets at the meaning of what Paul means. Oftentimes, uh, the, the translation that we have in our pews, New International Version, it tends to sometimes overinterpret these phrases. So if you're, if you're familiar with the King James Version or other translations, almost all of them say Jesus Christ was in the form of God. In other words, they, they don't tell us how to interpret the phrase. And this all revolves around the Greek word morphe. And there's been all kinds of scholarship and ink has been spilled for miles on this one word itself. And so the question this morning for us, as we humbly look at Scripture together, at Holy Scripture together, is what is the Bible telling us when it says that Jesus was in the form of God? There are basically two kinds of views that have historically been held. Pretty simple, but what makes it difficult is they go in completely opposite directions. The first view is this. We hear that Jesus was in the form of God because he, he is God and he was God. Only God can have the form of God. And thus Paul is saying to us that Jesus is in very nature God, as our translation says. The second option is one that is very dangerous for a number of reasons. It actually goes against the historic doctrine of the divinity of Christ. And it's that Jesus had the form of God because he had an outward appearance of God, but not an inward reality. And so that's what sometimes makes Bible translation and interpreting the Bible tricky, because you have these two options that are cutting in exactly opposite ways. But in recent decades, and really with the blessing of what we can do now with computers that crunch all of the words in ancient literature together, there have been all these kinds of studies done on Morphe. And so in the last 30 to 40 years, there has been a lot of consideration of this. And I think a wonderful third option has emerged. And I think this actually gets at what the meaning is here in this passage. The word Morphe, form... Uh, most naturally refers to something about someone that is observable to the eyes. And so if we go back into Roman culture and into Philippi and the kinds of things we've been talking about in recent weeks, and you use the example of clothing, we go back into the empire of Rome, one of the privileges of a Roman citizen was to wear a toga. And that actually was a pretty big deal. It got you access to all kinds of societal benefits. And the clothes that you wore was a, were a huge deal back then. It connected to status, and it told people about your status. Interestingly, Philippians has been pulling on these same threads. Social status, honor and shame, citizenship. But Paul has been doing it in a different way, hasn't he? He's been telling us that you are citizens of heaven. 
And it doesn't matter how Rome defines you. This is how you live in the church, because you're all one in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul says, in the wake of all of these things about social status and honor, shame, and citizenship, when he says Jesus is in the form of God, it most naturally means that Jesus, before he, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before he came to earth, enjoyed unending glory and splendor because he is God. John chapter 17. Father, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Paul is saying the status of Jesus was that he was God. And he was being treated according to that status. He was living in unending glory. Oftentimes the scriptures use clothing to drive this home. Psalm 104, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Sometimes when we we read the Old Testament, our mind kind of naturally goes to the person of the Father when we read these passages. But we need to remember that uh, God, the triune God, is equal in power and glory and majesty. So this tells us about Christ before he came to earth as well. So before Jesus was born in such a humble state, before he was born in humble conditions in Bethlehem, before that, the Christ enjoyed the unending light of the glory of God. He enjoyed the status, the glory and the splendor of being God. The creation and all the heavenly beings cried out to him, for he created all things. All things were created by him and for him, as Colossians 1 says. We think about this in terms of clothing. In the way that Philippian citizens would have thought about this, it makes perfect sense. Roman governors back then would often dress in ways that put out the message that they believed themselves to be divine, particularly Caesar. And of course, the cry went throughout that world that Caesar is Lord, and that's why Christians saying Jesus is Lord is such a a counterintuitive way to live life. Christ had God's status. So we actually do see an implicit, an implicit affirmation of the deity of Christ here. You remember last Sunday evening we considered Isaiah 44, God will not share his glory with another. Well, Before Christ came to earth as Jesus of Nazareth, he had the glory of God and only God can share in God's glory. And so that's what Paul means by saying that Jesus was in the form of of God. And then we move to the next phrase, and it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that can get us a little bit nervous. We say, Well, what does that mean? And some have suggested that it, that, that means Jesus really is below God the Father. And it's almost like being in a workplace. It would be someone who looks at their boss and says, that my boss is rightly my boss. I don't deserve his or her job, so I'm not even going to try to grasp at it. Some people think that that's what, what is going on here. That's not it at all. 
See, in the sense that we have just had the affirmation that Jesus himself is God, what is being said to us here is that he did not look upon his status as something to exploit for his own personal gain. And perhaps the best example comes from the life of Jesus himself. As he's being arrested and the twelve and particularly Peter begin to fight back so that the Roman soldiers can't take him away, what does Jesus say? He says, I have authority to call upon legions of angels. In other words, he's saying to Peter, don't you understand that if I don't will to do this, I, I won't do it. I'm doing this willingly. This is what needs to be done. He had the authority to do all that, but he, he did not. In some mysterious way, we know that since the plan of redemption is forged in eternity past, that Jesus would not have done that, but still, he has the authority to do it. So the point of all of this, that Jesus being in the form of God, he did not consider his status a thing to be exploited. The point of this, as we think about it for our own life, is that whatever status you have, Christ has more. However the world defines you, in whatever position you have, or that you have achieved in this life, Christ has more. Yet he did not view his status as something to exploit, to receive the service of others. The exact opposite took place. Place that over your life. Place that over the way that you tend to view yourself, or the way that you tend to view your place alongside others. And think about whether you sometimes tend to believe that others should be meeting your needs because perhaps they exist below you in whatever sense. Then think about how radically opposite to that thinking our Lord Jesus Christ acted. Paul is saying this is how you are to act as the people of God. There are all kinds of hierarchies in the world. Paul's concern is this is how life in the church is to go. Pattern your life and your action after Jesus Christ, whose unending glory was his robe of status. Whatever earthly glory you have, it's nothing compared to what Christ has. We are called not to treasure the passing glory that earthly man can give to you, to not treasure that, and that is a good thing to be reminded of, but we must also remember that Christ set aside a true glory, and so we take that into consideration when we seek to live gospel-centered lives. He came from the highest heights, and he went to the deepest depths. The deepest depths, the form of a servant. That's our second idea. The deepest depths, the form of a servant. We move to verse 7. It's another verse that kind of makes us nervous. It says, he made himself nothing. Other translations say he emptied himself. How can God make himself nothing? Did Jesus empty himself of all of his divine attributes? Well, we know that that can't be true, because if Jesus is truly God, then he cannot cease to be God. I am the Lord, Malachi 3, 6, and I do not change. God does not change, therefore Jesus could not cease to be God. The explanation for how he made himself nothing was, is given to us in the next phrase. He took the form of a servant. And there in our translation, once again, it says the very nature of a servant. So behind that, we have that Greek word morphe once again. So Paul is obviously trying to juxtapose these two things, the form of God and the form of a servant. 
And that's where you see the, the stark contrast of the highest heights to the deepest depths. It cannot get any higher in status than God. And it cannot get any lower in status, particularly in, in, Roman, in the Roman world, as a servant from God to a servant. Now we also need to understand that Jesus did not live his life in servitude to someone else as sort of his, his way of life. It wasn't his job, right? He wasn't actually a servant or a Roman slave. But what it means here is that Jesus Christ took the form of a servant in that he becomes man. Because when he becomes man, he becomes to visible eyes that which is made to serve the creator. All of us, human beings, men, women, and children, as we look at each other, we know that we all are not God. We all are not the creator. And thus we know that we were made to serve the creator. And this is how oftentimes interactions in the gospel unfold as Jesus claims his divinity. Listen to what happens in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. To be God is to be the master, the Lord, the owner of all things in heaven and earth. It exists by him and for him. To be a man is to be a servant, made to serve your creator, the one who owes homage to his God. And so Paul uses these two levels of status, the highest it can get and the lowest it can get, in order to impress upon us the glory of the work of Christ. This would have been, as one commentator puts it, arresting in the minds of his hearers, in the minds of its hearers when this letter was read out loud. Arresting to them. It ought to be arresting for us. It ought to make us stop dead in our tracks. This is where we ask ourselves, do we really understand the gospel and what is going on in it? Do we really adequately take stock in what it took for Jesus Christ to become man? One of, uh, one of my favorite Chris Christmas hymns to sing is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Right? Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence and with fear and trembling stand Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. Keep silence, for God has come to earth. Have you ever read the Gospels through the lens that with every conversation, with every interaction that Jesus has, those who do not bow down to him in worship are really, in a sense, blaspheming, giving him nothing of the homage he deserves. And he had enjoyed that in unending glory from eternity past. And he comes to earth. He stoops down to receive none of the homage that he deserves in his earthly life. And that's just in the incarnation. Paul moves from the incarnation to the cross. He says that not only did he become uh, did he come in the form of a servant? Not only did he become man, but then he humbles himself to die the most horrible, the most despised death 
that was present that day on planet Earth. He gladly embraced obedience to the Father's will. That's the glory of the cross. And so Hebrews chapter 2 brings it back and says, how do you think about Jesus taking the form of a servant? How do you think about him taking the form of a slave, going to the lowest status in society to save sinners? This is what the author of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the Lord of glory, the eternal Lord of glory, became a servant, a slave, so that slaves like you and me could become his brothers and sisters and share in his glory in eternity. The eternal Lord of glory became a slave, So that slaves like you and me could become his brothers and sisters and enjoy his glory for eternity. Isaiah says that all of our deeds, all of our righteous deeds, if we were to try to clothe ourselves in them, it would be like filthy rags. It's nothing, nothing to God. But in the obedient son, the one who came from the highest heights to the deepest depths, as we trust in him, the Lord... The eternal God clothes his people with the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness to to sprout up before all the nations. He makes it appear. He clothes his people in righteousness. He gives us this status that we do not have. See, just as he came from the deepest depths, he found us in the deepest depths. Enslaved to our sin. Trapped in the miry clay, in a pit of destruction. And he clothes us in righteousness. It makes us think, doesn't it, of the prodigal son. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The the, the father is saying there, he is my son Let him dress having the status of my son. I'm throwing my mercy upon him and covering him with righteousness. This is the glory and the grace of the gospel. Rejoice in your Savior. Put your faith in Christ anew this morning. Place your love upon him. Make it your aim to serve him in love and in willingness. This should open up for us the way that Paul greets the Philippians. He says, I am Paul the slave of Christ. I'm his servant because of the glory of what he has done. It's a a gladness, a willingness to serve him with our lives. Samuel Rutherford is reflecting on the glory of, of Christ and pleading with people to come to him. He says, pity 
forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and yet so few take him. O ye poor, dry, dead souls, why will you not come here with your empty vessels and your empty souls to this huge and fair and deep and sweet well of life and fill all of your empty vessels? Oh, that Christ would be so large in sweetness and worth and we so narrow and pinched and so void of all happiness and yet men will not take him. They lose their love miserably who will not bestow it upon this lovely one. It's then, of course, not just to serve him, the joy we have in serving him, but the glory of God who became man for you gives us joy in our sufferings. For nothing can take away the robe of righteousness that he gives to you. And then finally, of course, and this is Paul's entire point in this context, is that A unity, a supernatural unity will pour forth from a community of people that are shaped with this as their central reality, who live in this gospel-centered kind of way. Unity comes from being of the same mind, people who love Christ and seek the glory of Christ and seek to adopt his mindset, his attitude as their example. See, he, he... Jesus becomes our greatest joy. He becomes the object of our affections. It's not so much the status he gives to us, but he gives us himself to be with him, to be as a a bridegroom who is made perfect for the bride. That is the hope of glory, the hope of our unity while we remain below. On a bride's wedding day, she is perhaps not so much concerned anymore with her dress. She is concerned about the groom, the bridegroom. And so, this wonderful hymn that we're about to sing, it says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Be of one mind today as people who love to serve the king, who stooped to conquer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word who came and tabernacled among men. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the eternal Lord of glory who became slave, to redeem slaves like us, so that we might enjoy the glory of the Lord in eternity. We give you all thanks and praise and adoration. Pray that you would hear our prayer, cleanse us, renew us by the gospel of grace. In Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Stand together.